The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 4, and while you're turning, have you ever tried to tell somebody something but found it difficult because you were afraid you might offend them? Or you were afraid they wouldn't really understand and it might cause a problem? Well, put yourself in Paul's position this morning because I believe Paul had something like that. In fact, <clears throat> I find it even more interesting that as Paul worked with this, these folks in Philippians and as he wrote this letter, you know, in each chapter as we went through, there was these wonderful excerpts about unity, being one in Christ. And in the midst of all this wonderful doctrine, Paul just keeps throwing in this thing about unity. And when you deal with it one verse at a time and one chapter at a time, you take it for face value and work at it. But when you step back and you look at the whole book, you begin to think, does Paul have a motive here? Why does he keep going back to unity? Let me give you an example. <clears throat> Philippians 1.9. And it is my prayer that you love, your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. <clears throat> so he's going through all these wonderful texts, and he's talking about the power of Christ and having the mind of Christ, and, all, and then he drops in a unity verse. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, <clears throat> complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in, of one mind. And then in chapter 3, Philippians 3, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So when you look at this flow, you kind of get the feeling he's beating around the bush. He's got a motive here. It's not just a unity thing, but he's building up to something. And then finally, we come to our text this morning, and he just lays it out. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 5. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So Paul tactfully draws all this together, and he just puts it out there. There's friction. There are two wonderful, loving, God-fearing women who got a problem here. But he doesn't elaborate on the problem at all. And I think that's fascinating here, especially in the style which, which Paul deals with people. He doesn't point to the issue or who's right or wrong. What he is doing is pointing to the heart and the heart of these people. And that's why he's been building up through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, focusing on the heart, unity in Christ, trusting Christ, living for Christ, never the issue at hand. And then he finally lays it out in the last chapter. 
So in doing so, he gives you and I a very clear-cut example of how to deal with these things and walk with each other. So let's take a few minutes and focus on Christian unity. We must recognize at the outset, however, that we are talking about Christian unity. This means unity amongst believers. Paul says that Eudia and Syntyche are to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, it's a matter of being born again, member of the family. You might think of all people as being God's children, but that's not the case. All people are God's creation, but not all people are God's children. In fact, Jesus himself said to some people that they were of their father, the devil. I mean, he just said it straight out. And one of the clear examples of this is found in the eighth chapter of John, where we have an account of Jesus' conversation with the Jewish leaders. And in the course of the conversation, Jesus spoke of teaching that he would set men free. This set off quite a reaction because there is an old expression that you never talk about a rope in the home of a hangman. And likewise, it could be said, you don't talk about freedom in front of a first century Palestinian Jew. Freedom was a touchy subject in Rome. But the way the people reacted was kind of unique because they said, what do you mean free? Why do you say this to us? We are Abraham's children. We have never been in bondage to anyone. Really? It was either an outright lie or they're suffering from self-delusion because the Jews had been in bondage to Egypt for 400 years. They had been bondage to Philistines, the Amorites, the Syrians, the Babylonians. And even now during this conversation, they were in bondage in Rome. And the very coins they carried in their, in their pocket bore the inscription of Caesar. But they'd never been in bondage? So what we find here, like today, there are so many people today who don't understand that they're in bondage. What Jesus is going to do is reflect the conversation back to the original tent of his message, and that is a spiritual bondage. He explained that the bondage he meant was a bondage to sin, and therefore they were actually children of the devil. And they would stay so unless they came to Christ in perfect faith and put their trust in him. So we're talking this morning about Christian unity amongst Christian believers, amongst those who trust Christ as their Savior. So let's look at maintaining this unity. There there are some practical ways that Paul lists in this discussion about uh, Judea and Syntyche and the way he develops these principles. Paul actually gives us a clear understanding, and we would do well to heed what Paul has to say here. Number one, Christians are to agree with, with each other in the Lord. Now, that's important. In the Lord. This means that they are to have the mind of Christ. Now, think about that for a moment. Any conflict that you have had with someone that has erupted, could you say you had the mind of Christ in that situation? Probably not. But this is the key that Paul is getting through. This is what Paul wrote down in Philippians 2.5. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours 
in Christ Jesus. He's not speaking of the doctrines that Christ taught, although they're very critical, but he's speaking of the attitude of the heart that surrenders itself to a heart of Christ. Christ had a humble mind. Christ had a lowly mind. It's the mind of one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself of no reputation for you and I who were wrong. He humbled himself and gave himself to us. Here's an interesting thing to ponder. When you have the mind of Christ, it's very hard to offend you. Let me say that again. When you have the mind of Christ, it's very hard to offend you. It's evident that in this context, Paul's plea to agree with each other is a plea for the operation of humility and self-sacrifice amongst Christians. Do you realize that through this whole situation, the notion of who was right and wrong was never addressed? And I think this is very significant principle here. This will never occur apart from a a personal, intimate walk with the Lord. This can never happen without having the mind of Christ and focused on Him. You remember last week when we looked at Jesus addressing the crowd in Luke chapter 14 and how He said, unless you hated your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, and even yourself, you couldn't be His disciple. And we talked about the reality that what he was saying here was unless he came before everyone else, you couldn't be a true disciple. A true disciple is gracious in conflict and will diffuse the problem with the mind of Christ. And if you should offend someone and they come to you, a mind of Christ is quick to be at peace, to confess, to apologize even if you're not wrong. Because at the heart of the Spirit-filled believer, you want Christ glorified. And arguments never glorify Christ. Paul wanted his admonition to the women at Philippi to come down to the personal level. He knew, as we all know, that the effectiveness of the Christian warfare depends upon the conduct of the individual Christian. As the church impinges on the world, it's like a triangle. You've got the broad base with so many people. uh, But the point at which it really touches is the apex, and that's the individual Christian. And who are the individuals? You and I. There is to be Christian unity, and it must be maintained by a constant walk with the Lord. Now, if you remember the illustration I told you last week about the 100 pianos, all 100 pianos tuned to the very same tuning fork by necessity are tuned to each other. If you're tuned to one tuning fork, you have to be in tune with each other. That's just a given. And when a child of God's focus is heart, his dedication, his passion is almighty God, then that same passion goes out to everyone around us. If there's a conflict, somebody's out of tune, right? 
So it's a beautiful picture when you consider that. When you and I can spend our lives being focused on walking with Christ, it affects everyone around us in that very positive way. Number two, we must work together. Paul calls attention to this aspect of unity by referring to his fellow workers at Philippi and to the one who is called a a true companion or loyal yoke fellow, depending on your translation. By these references, he is suggesting that it's not enough for Christians merely to think of spiritual unity. They must work at spiritual unity. Uh, there's been much debate about who this true companion is or this true yoke fellow. Some of the commentaries, they say it's Clement of Alexander who was mentioned earlier. But I kind of agree with some of the commentators that believe it's Epaphroditus who has already been described as my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and who is about to carry the letter from Paul in Rome to Philippi. And if this is the case, it means that Paul merely incorporated his charge to Epaphroditus right in the letter letter, to give him an official assignment, and Epaphroditus would be to conduct himself as a real example before the people. So Paul is now thinking back of the wonderful times that he had in Philippi, and he's wanting the people to keep on. And I think it's so amazing when you look at this whole thing and If Paul has generally been popping these unity points all through the book and now lays it out between these two women, this is a whole church at Philippi. Yet he takes the time to bring to light a conflict. And these just weren't two fringe women. These were women who were actively involved in the ministry, actively involved in Paul's ministry. So you understand how critical this is. That unity is so important within the church. Now, if you recall, when when we were in the book of John, um, back a ways, uh, we were in chapter 7 one time. We were talking about Jesus' prayer as he prayed for all those that were with him. If you recall, John 17, beginning of verse 9, Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, all mine are yours, and you are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now notice, that they may be one even as we are one. You realize what Jesus is saying here? You and I are to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Seriously? We're talking God here. We're talking the Godhead. But as the Holy Spirit lives within your heart and draws you to Him and you get the mind of Christ, your deep passion for each other and oneness for each other is what gives us the incredible testimony that we have as a church. So John establishes, by recording Jesus' word, the absolute necessity for unity. Now look, he goes on, John 17, beginning of verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, this is really critical here. 
Because Jesus makes it clear, I'm not just praying for the disciples. I'm not just praying for these people around me who have come to follow me, who have seen all my miracles. I'm praying for those who are going to come to me because of their testimony. And that's you and me. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, prayed for you specifically. And he prayed for me specifically. And he prayed that we would be so one in each other. Now look, he goes on. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus in the Father, the Father in Jesus. Jesus in you, you in Jesus. That is the single greatest testimony to the world around us. And when the world sees the love and the compassion and the care that you and I have for one another, it can't help but draw them because everybody wants to experience that kind of love. That kind of love can only be experienced by a Christian and it can only be shared by true Christian hearts to the world around us. And this is what he's trying to get across. And may I say, it's not just offering a smile here or there. It's rolling up your sleeves and working side by side in ministry. Eudia and Syntyche were co-laborers for Paul for the glory of God. We're talking about two women in the whole church of Philippians or Philippi. But it was enough for Paul to address it because it could get to the point where the testimony of that church could be hindered. And Paul wouldn't let it go any farther. You and I are to have a passion for one another. And even when we see difficult things happening, deal with them with a heart like Christ dealt with us. Have the same love that Christ had for us. You know, the Bible says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. While we were still wretched, filthy, unloving people, his heart of compassion forgave. And that's what's critical about the church because the unity we have with each other that the world sees is a forgiving, compassionate unity. It's the mind of Christ, always loving, always forgiving, always putting it out there. So we're to rejoice then in the Lord together. That's the natural byproduct, Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Paul knew that if the Christians are rejoicing in God's mercy and goodness, they are not likely to have time to nitpick each other. And the word rejoice is very interesting. It's a variant from the word joy, which is one of the Christian virtues and a fruit of the Spirit. Consequently, rejoicing like joy is supernatural. For example, joy is supernatural, happiness is not. Happiness is external. It's circumstantial. We've all seen the Charlie Brown uh, comic that said, happiness is a warm blanket. Well, suppose you don't have a blanket. 
then you're not happy. Happiness depends on things we have or we've acquired. For some, it's money. For some, it's fame. For some, it's good looks. But when they go, so goes happiness. It's not that way with joy. Joy issues from the nature of God. And it is intended to well up within those whom God's Spirit is in control. It's not external. It's internal. It does not hinge on circumstances. Things can happen that will make us very unhappy. But the true child of God has a constant joy in their heart. The Christian who is filled with the Spirit will not be finding grounds for disagreement with other Christians, but will seek to offer mercy and compassion. And then, of course, this leads to the point that we're to be reasonable. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Some of your translations might call it gentleness. Literally, Paul means that we should be reasonable or gentle. Again, when someone comes in a conflict and you have a gentle spirit, you respond gently. You respond reasonably. The sentence is a warning not to be duly rigorous in our responses. This doesn't mean that Christians are to be compromising in their doctrinal beliefs. Paul's not talking about doctrine here. He's not talking about compromising the Word of God. In fact, uh, he has already written in, in chapter 2, verse 15, that we are to live blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He wrote in Romans 12, 2, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So he's merely saying here that Christians are to be understanding and forgiving as Christ was understanding and forgiving to us. Let, let me give you an example. And I, and I know from time to time I go back to the same illustration because it just has a powerful effect on me. And that's the adulterous woman. You recall that the adulterous woman was found in the act of adultery, dragged out, thrown before Jesus in, a, in the street. All the men came around with stones ready to stone her. She's guilty. She's violated the law. The law says that she's to be stoned to death. Now, Jesus, you're God. What are you going to do? And what did Jesus do? He said, okay. Whoever you is here who is without sin, cast the first stone. She's still guilty. She still violated the law. She still deserves punishment. But as you know the story, all you hear is the dropping of stones as they walk away. The scripture says from the eldest to the youngest. The eldest knew better because they knew they weren't sinless. And the youngers who didn't know any better figured they better leave if the elder ones went. But she's standing there, and Jesus says, Woman, where are your accusers? She's still guilty. She still violated the law. She still deserves stoning. She says, I don't have any. But Jesus said, She's still guilty. She still deserves punishment. He says, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. It's the law. It's what's required. 
She's guilty. But Jesus offered grace and mercy and love. And when you're about to be in the midst of a conflict and someone comes with anger, do you have the heart of Christ to be able to say, it's okay, it's all right, I understand. Maybe I said something that I didn't realize. I apologize. How can we work through this? And this is what Paul is trying to get through. This idea of the mind of Christ is not just an exercise you work at. It's a reality that lives through you. And you respond not as the human self, but as the God of Calvary who lives within you and has forgiven you every single day for everything you've even forgotten you've done. And it's that same mercy that he's calling upon us to deal with conflict. Obviously, trying to live this way is the tough part. But I want you to notice something here because Paul understood this. It's one thing to say to each other, well, let's be of the same mind and let's work together and let's rejoice. But it's quite another thing to put it in practice. Fortunately, Paul understood that. And he has given us the solution to the problem. In the first four verses of this chapter, he says, in the Lord, three times. And once he reminds the Philippians that the Lord is near in verse 5. The solution to the problem, the solution to any conflict, is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he is your go-to, you automatically diffuse conflicts. You see, what happens to us is in our sinful flesh, in our sinful nature, we don't like to be wrong. And especially if somebody's hurt us. I mean, I have a right, don't I? Do you have a right before Christ? This is why Paul, in dealing with this situation, never dealt with what the problem was. The problem was insignificant. It was the heart that mattered. And in any conflict, generally someone's right and someone's wrong. But when the heart is full of the Spirit, God is glorified and it works itself out. What Paul is trying to get through to, to us this morning and what he tried to get through to Judea and Syntyche, look, if you're following Christ, he must increase. No, I must decrease. And when you're walking with the Lord, His Spirit will always guide you to gentleness and to mercy. And what I would say to you is when you're uh, confronted with a conflict, first thing you think about is, how did Jesus treat me? Because I'm constantly offending Him. And then look at the others with the Spirit of Christ coming through you. And you'll be amazed at what God does through your heart and life. Paul wanted them to understand that it's the spirit of unity that makes any church triumph. It is that unity that affects the community. It is that unity that affects you and your families. It is that unity that encourages you when you're down. 
It's that unity that will cause you to mount up with wings as eagles and have faith in Christ. What a beautiful picture. And again, I love the way Paul just kind of snuck it in verse by verse and then finally laid it out at the end. What a beautiful picture if we as Grace Fellowship Church would stand on that kind of unity. No matter what happens, he comes first. And if he can use us in a situation to aid someone else, God gets the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much this morning for your amazing love. Thank you, Lord, that how you just take this situation of unity and just make it so clear to every one of us. You are such a loving, compassionate God. And Lord, I'm sure here this morning there are some of us who are dealing with conflicts. There are some people, we've tried everything, but they won't hear of it. But teach us to go to you first and call upon you to let your spirit live through us. And Lord, just triumph in our situations that your glory would be seen and would draw more people to you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your great blessing. And help us to walk out today living for you in any crisis situation that may come. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. God bless.